Hey everyone, welcome to the HC High. In this series, we'll get to know current students in the Georgia Tech HCI program, and our goal is to expand your understanding of what HCI looks like and explore the personalities that make our program what it is. So yeah, welcome, and why don't you tell everybody your name, where you're from, and what you did before coming to GT. Oh, thanks for having me first, mm -hmm. and hi everyone, I'm Sejal, and I am a second year on the psych track. Before this, I did my master's in applied psych. The thing was, I had to defer my plans to come into this program for a year. So in that year, because of the pandemic, the job market wasn't looking good, and my experience with counseling had like led me to experience burnout myself initially, because like a lot of people were seeking therapy at that point of time. Yeah, yeah. So I sort of worked with the Indian equivalent of a CDC, tried to understand how the pandemic was psychologically affecting people in India. And once that project got over, I was working with an undergraduate university in India where I was teaching them psych papers and teaching them how to do research methodologies and just working with students and helping them do their thesis papers and submissions. Just little side odd jobs but yeah that was what I was doing before nice nice yeah okay so how has your year and a half at GT been Ooh, it's been great actually yeah. I think because my background was very very traditional hardcore psych so when I came in I knew there were a lot of things about HCI and UX that I did not know and there's been a lot of learning not just like through the course but also through my peers because people here are all from such varied backgrounds that you just learn a lot of things by having conversations like these and you understand how people are thinking. And I feel like a lot of my understanding of what the field is and what I should expect as a UX researcher more through engagement with the people mm -hmm. rather than through the program per mm -hmm. se. So it's definitely been great. And the other big thing that's been good for me is that as an international student, for me, this program has been a source of finding community mm -hmm. and finding my foothold in the US. For me, these are like my first friends in this country. It's sort of been low-key like a family, so that's mm -hmm. been good. That's yeah. Great. Along the lines of finding like a family on mm -hmm. campus, how's that experience been? I, I think because when you think of family, you think of something that's like grounding you and giving you like the support mm -hmm. that you need to like do things and explore and go for age out in the world and like come back. Having people who are very understanding of differences or like acknowledge the fact that there are things I may not know because I did not grow up here or there are things that I may know and I could bring a different perspective to things and allowing that sort of seat on the table. But not just in terms of like the kind of work we do, but outside even when we're socializing or just like I learn so much about not just the US but also the world because we're like a very internationally like just a very diverse cohort mm -hmm. and I think that's comforting if I have to give like a tangible example of this like yeah. over the summer mm -hmm. I was not here I was in San Francisco right, right. as you know because yeah, uh, like you yes <laughs> a bunch yeah. but I was there for like three months a little yeah. more than three months I did not end up making any so to say new friends 
because I didn't have to. There were just so many people from the program who were visiting San Francisco, who either for like a couple of days or a week. And there were people like you who were in the Bay, so who I could meet up. And I never felt I was like all alone by myself in a new city, in a new part of the country. So that was comforting because I got to explore the Bay, like explore the city. And I find I found people here who I can, you know, be sagal with. I don't have to be like always second guessing what I'm saying or I don't have to be conscious about my accent or the things that I'm saying or just like the way I'm behaving. I think there's like a lot of comfort with the cohort that we have. So yeah. that's good. That's what I mean by like <laughs> low-key family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I, yeah. I don't know if it's our program or just people who choose this field, but I mm-hmm. do feel like everyone here generally I feel very like safe around. Yeah. Yeah. So I think to some extent and this might just be like school spirit, but I think to some extent it's like the people in our program specifically. Yeah. Because you do f- find people in the field who are not from like tech or from the program. Mm-hmm. And while I'm not saying nobody's like outright mean, I feel like you don't have that sort of warm, immediate connection with them. Agreed. So do you want to talk about what projects you've been working on mm-hmm. while you were here at Georgia Tech? Ooh, there have been so many. There's this one that I really like because I think it ties in my experience mm-hmm. to what I want to do in the future. So that was good. I was working in the SOC web lab, which is social SOC. web. Yeah, which is... S-O-C-W-E-B uh-huh. which is like social well-being and dynamic uh, I'm thinking of like a <laughs> social dynamic yeah, yeah no I get that I get that it was a Dr. Munmunde Chaudhary oh okay yeah, yeah. yeah so I worked all of last year on this project with her and her team and this was like a collaborative project with Lehigh University as well but we were basically looking at people who were recovering from eating disorders Mm -hmm. and looking at their recovery process and seeing if we could use tech to help mediate that recovery. Mm -hmm. When you look into a lot of literature about people with mental health concerns, a lot of times they're experiencing a lot of emotional burdens. So disclosure is when they use platforms like these it could also happen in a therapeutic setting but mm-hmm. when they're explaining what they're going through what they're feeling what mm-hmm. they're thinking on a platform or uh, it could either be a conversation like this mm-hmm. or it could be a conversation with a, with a therapist or it could be an online anonymous thing where they post to say something like reddit tumblr and they talk about their experiences and these are very deep and personal insights that they're sharing so you had insight into their private mm-hmm. tumblrs Yes. And then what did you do with that information? Okay. I'll take a step back first to explain the project. Mm -hmm. Basically, this was like a legacy project. There have been people in the past who have worked on a similar space from MSHCI here in that lab. And I was sort of continuing their work. Mm -hmm. Previous papers had explored and found that Tumblr is a social media platform that's very popular with people with eating disorders. And what they found was that because it allows you to post both pictures and text, Mm -hmm. A lot of times when people are going through their recovery process, they talk about their struggles and things that are going well and things that are going bad and their triggers and etc. on that platform. So I looked at 25 of these Tumblr accounts and went through each and every post that they had over a span of two to five years. Because some were more frequent, some were less frequent. And I qualitatively coded them so we could do thematic analysis on it. So a lot of time spent in front Mm -hmm. of spreadsheets. Mm -hmm. While I was doing this, other members on the team were quantitatively analyzing it. They were using machine learning components and like 
Perry CS heavy things that I have no idea what was <laughs> happening. I cannot do justice describing it. But this is like mixed method study. So we basically took my qualitative analysis and like thematic analysis of what what were the things people were talking about on Tumblr, and we tried to model a way and see if we could actually use their disclosures on this to see where they are in the recovery process and get them the help they need to make sure that the recovery is as and what they envision. For example, if there are ways for us to identify which posts are discussing triggers and how soon after like a post about trigger is relapse happening, maybe we could use this to earmark that and bring that up with the person itself or bring that up with their therapist or their support system and be like, oh, maybe you should be a little more vigilant about this aspect of your life. Maybe you'd like to talk about this to someone and see if that would help them continue on recovery. Because um, with eating disorders, it's a lot of conditioning, right? Like you've grown up believing things about you, your body image, about the society around you. So it's a lot of unconditioning that you have to do, and that's a very difficult process. So if we could use something like this to help them in that recovery process, that would be great. Out of all of the problems that I did in the program, this was the closest that I could get to my background yeah. and where I come from, while still sort of working in within HCI and within UX and see how I. I could take what I know mm-hmm. and make that something helpful for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So I think it was sort of combined or like marrying my background to my future interests, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I spent a lot of time, like I spent almost an entire semester just sitting up close reading these very personal yeah. accounts of people's. When I was doing it, I was like looking at it from the lens of a researcher. But there would be moments when I had to take a pause because I'd stop myself from start analyzing what they're saying as a therapist or like even just relating to them just as another human, right? And just for me also, it was like a lot of self-growth because I would realize, okay, I need to take a break from my work and take care of my own needs yeah. before I go back into this. Yeah, I, I was also wondering, like you were saying that you were looking at them with a therapist lens. What are the two lenses like? Oh, I think you need to have empathy irrespective of what lens you're looking at, for sure. But I think with a therapist, you try to start seeing the connections between things people are saying mm-hmm. and not saying. Whereas for the researcher, it's evidence-based, right? Mm-hmm. So you're like, oh, this is what this person said, and this is how I will code it, and this is how it's going to go. And it's very, I think, scientific in its rigor and like looking at it. Whereas with a therapist lens, you're also looking at the person and like the socioeconomic factors that they're saying or not saying like for one of the persons they were talking about their family life as well or they would give little hints to their family life while they were talking about their recovery process Mm -hmm. and if I were to look at as a therapist I would note down all those things and Mm -hmm. I would look at okay what are the things that they have received from like a caregiver and how is that impacting their recovery process so in therapy you have to conceptualize a lot as and when you get information and be like oh is this where the person is coming from and you'd have this conversation and have feedback with them and see if your assessments about the problem space are correct and base Mm. your treatments based on what you have deduced Mm. their problem to be yeah and so there's a lot more being on your toes and like being more spontaneous about things whereas with research i think it's a little more rigid like you take it as the evidence that's provided to you but as a therapist you also look at even though this is the evidence that's given to you mm-hmm. what is the things that are not given to you right. explaining about that evidence as well right so it's more broader in that lens so sometimes I'd like tag things mm-hmm. late at night and then I'd get up the next day and I'd go back what I tagged and I'm like oh wait 
this is not what the evidence is saying this is what i'm assuming based on things they've said before and so i'd have to like step back and look at each post in isolation and yeah. then tag it as opposed yeah. to as a therapist where you have to look at nothing in isolation everything is within a system yeah. so it was good for me it was like good practice to it, have it, it's probably good practice yeah like, switching between the two sages <laughs> two sages yeah is there an interesting insight about your research that you've discovered that you didn't expect for example people using tumblr like i didn't know people still use tumblr i think so. that was my surprise going into the project yeah. as well i yeah. was like we still doing tumblr yeah cuz like i feel like for most of the lay people it seems like tumblr is dead but tumblr is actually still very active what we realized was that a lot of people mm-hmm. they would have periods where they would disappear and then they would come back and they disappear for months sometimes for years and when they would come back it, you'd have to read through some of their posts to realize oh they were not here because they had actually unfortunately relapsed so you would have these gaps in like the data but every time they took a break from the medium and they came back mm-hmm. they knew these other people would still be yeah, in their community yeah. and beyond there so it was easier for them to go back and reach out to them so that was interesting for me in hindsight that makes sense like mm-hmm. you're already in such a vulnerable position you've disclosed it with someone mm-hmm. even if they're strangers on the internet you would trust the same strangers so to say again then find new strangers right yeah yeah i was doing research on um elderly with type 2 mm-hmm. diabetes and i think i told you this before but there's a lot of facebook groups where yeah. they don't know each other but they're talking to each other about like tips and tricks mm-hmm. and they're really emotionally vulnerable with each other and i thought that was really interesting and to your point about the people that you were studying like them not really trusting their providers i think that's like, so important these platforms to exist like outside of us posting like <laughs> um, for sure like what we're doing and what we're eating on social media and that's so interesting that you said that because last spring i took this class which was digital health equity mm-hmm. and like one of the things that we discussed in class was that how important these kind of online platforms are mm-hmm. especially in terms of the health space mm-hmm. more often than not they actually are sources of support and empathy you need in that point of time and can yeah. actually help you overcome some of these challenges yeah so that's yeah. interesting it's interesting that we had similar pro- like different projects but yeah. we had similar insights yeah. to something i learned in like a completely different class <laughs> yeah yeah but yes platforms are important to mm-hmm. okay we're going to enter the hot takes portion of this Ooh. episode and it's when you can discuss a hot take mm-hmm. something controversial that some opinion you hold and we can poke at it and talk about it So if you have any hot takes I feel like <laughs> doesn't everyone have hot yes. takes? Okay, hot take. I do not think that mental health apps like Headspace, Calm, etc are as good as they're perpetrated to be. Uh, <laughs> okay. And before I dive deep into Headspace, mm-hmm. I do think they make meditation and some amount of self-care mm-hmm. accessible, mm-hmm. which is good. but they treated as like the be all and end all of mental health care mm-hmm. which i disagree with mm-hmm. like i think it's great to do guided meditation sessions mm-hmm. or guided breathing or imagery i have used all these tools in the therapeutic space so mm-hmm. i know that they work and they help people 
calm down just especially when you heightened stages of like anxiety or like mm-hmm. fear or like just over stressed or thinking they bring you down help you make peace with what you're thinking what you're feeling and then help you move ahead with problem solving all good and valid mm-hmm. however mm-hmm. i feel that i think this is just like my therapist background coming in but i feel it's not enough to just do a tool with someone mm-hmm. it's important that you teach them that tool that you equip them to do mm-hmm. this by themselves as a therapist if i was doing guided meditation or guided imagery with someone mm-hmm. it's not just that oh i'm doing this in the session and ho- helping you calm down it's more like i'm coaching you to do this by yourself tomorrow when you leave my therapist session and if something happens you have this toolkit or the skill set to help you manage things on your own mm-hmm. and i feel that's something that these apps are not doing mm-hmm. sure like in that moment when you're stressed they're giving you like a guided meditation session and it calms you down but that's it that's where it ends mm-hmm. you are not able to take that learning and take it outside of that app right mm-hmm. you have now become reliant on that app to help you get through which i think is the antithesis or the antichrist of like what <laughs> guided imagery or guided meditation is uh-huh. it's teaching you to do this by yourself it's equipping you it's like a toolkit that you need to like that you take away in life with and the other thing is i get it it's like corporate or, and business is important but i do not like that they gamify mental health mm-hmm. you have streaks that you need to do and it counts how many days you've meditated mm-hmm. and things like that meditation is a good practice mm-hmm. if it suits you but you should not be coerced into having to meditate mm-hmm. right what if i'm having a good day and i don't need that meditation what if i'm mm-hmm. someone who only needs to meditate when i'm having high anxiety situations mm-hmm. if any of these apps is giving me notifications like oh it's been so many days since you've not meditated or not mm-hmm. done a session mm-hmm. i feel like that's forcing me to do something that i don't really need to do at that point of time mm-hmm. it's like a forcing action to make right. me open that app and use it right yeah. this is something that we don't like and we consider like bad design or like dark ui so like your anti notifications and is it that all mental health or approaches to kind of improving yourself you think should be initiated by the person internally like that could be phrased better um, internally motivated i think to get the most meaning mm-hmm. out of things that you're doing something like meditation mm-hmm. it needs to be intrinsically motivated mm-hmm. however i get like for some people the execution of mm-hmm. doing something is tough mm-hmm. and like i may be motivated to get on top of all my things and be like a girl boss right but if i'm feeling at executing it and i have an external system helping me execute mm-hmm. sure great mm-hmm. but does that change my motivation for doing it mm-hmm. that's what's important am i doing headspace for the sake and i'm just saying headspace because that's what we're talking about like but any of these mental apps mm-hmm. am i using it because i think any of these meditations are helping me and mm-hmm. i'm doing this with the idea of being fully focused on that meditation session or am i doing it for that streak or am i doing it because oh like everybody else is doing headspace and i need to do headspace what is my motivation for doing that am i being coerced into doing it because of that notification system or because it's game because we know mm-hmm. being an hci we know gamification works we know forcing yeah. actions work mm-hmm. right So am I doing it because of these reasons or am I doing it because I genuinely feel like I'm someone who needs to do a meditation session every day. Yeah. And if that is the point that I'm using it for, why am I only doing it through that app? 
why can i why can that app not teach me how to do it by myself also mm. right why am i paying a subscription fee to hear some random actor asking me to calm down and do box breathing <laughs> versus <laughs> like them teaching me how to do box breathing and right. me doing it when i'm actually stressed in like my day to day what do you think about for example my apple watch tells me to go stand up or like keep up my streak for closing all my rings or doing some physical activity honestly a strong motivator yeah <laughs> um but i guess it's a little different because there i'm not relying on the app to do these physical exercises yeah. it's simply a motivator whereas with these apps they're sort highly dependent on that exactly yeah. and also the other thing is unfortunately the kind of lives most of us live nowadays are full of stressors mm-hmm. right work is demanding school is demanding personal lives could be and there's just a lot that you have to cope as an individual which is a whole other rant <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh there's like a lot more stressors right mm-hmm. if as a population we're going through so much the most obvious outcome should be that healthcare should be more accessible mm-hmm. right that if i'm having like a mental breakdown or i'm like not able to function i should be able to access healthcare professionals and get that help mm-hmm. what happens is that because these apps are now prevalent mm-hmm. a lot of especially big corporations mm-hmm. they're like oh we won't give you access to mental health providers but we will give you a free membership of headspace right. or we would give you like a premium membership of something like calm and they're like this is good this is going to ha- this is putting like a bandaid yeah, on a wound exactly. that requires stitches yeah exactly right mm-hmm. and that's not helpful you may think it's helpful but it's not yeah you're just deceiving yourself into thinking you're actually doing something for your mental health because your stress is not changing mm-hmm. you have not gained a new skill or a new tool to help you build your resources mm-hmm. or become resilient to that stress or not changing mm-hmm. if you're not if you're not able to take that sort of insight and put it in your life and every day you're just having momentary reprieve from something that could have been changed and could have been improved so you're, you're not at the net of it you're not benefiting so much as you're thinking mm-hmm. which i think is problematic <laughs> Yeah, I guess it should be marketed as a solution cuz mm-hmm. like, it definitely does work, it but does. it's just like it should not be seen as a replacement. Yes, and th- that's my biggest thing, right? And I think the other thing for me personally, I find it like a little weird that one of the founders for Headspace is someone who is a monk. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean you can't be like, "Oh, I have given up all worldly mm-hmm. and I'm like meditating and I'm in this space mm-hmm. for a decade and I'm, oh, you know what I'm going to do with my learning? Go back to the worldly world and teach like I think the intention might be good, but they made a business out of it. Yeah. it like if they really wanted to do that, they could have just been, I don't know, just gone to the world, right? Yeah, I've been using Headspace for a bit and there was not a single time where I didn't open the app and do a meditation. That's <laughs> I feel great. like I need it. That's great. <laughs> I mean, no, it's bad because I never really learned anything from it. <laughs> I'm just like heavily reliant app user, but mm-hmm. yeah, that's interesting the founder story. Such a tea. <laughs> Such a tea. <laughs> I mean, it's not tea. It's on the internet. So, it's <laughs> true, that's true, that's true. Um, interesting. Okay. So, in terms of like finding like that support, like you know how we both did research on like these social platforms would you suggest that for mental health yes oh okay. yes because like we discussed mm-hmm. in both of our experiences right mm-hmm. the populations were so different mm-hmm. but you actually do find so much support mm-hmm. and it's the internet so i'm not saying everything there is right mm-hmm. but 
a lot of it is actually very positive mm. and a lot of them are saying things that will help you get through and i think that's important they may not be someone who's in your immediate environment it mm. could be like a stranger on like a social media platform mm-hmm. but if at that moment in time they're able to listen to you and mm. be a sounding board and help you overcome some of the things that you're thinking and positively reframe what you're going through and help you look at the bright side of things this is a very oversimplified solution to a very complicated problem but like i think because of the conversation that we're having i think that's a good starting point mm. yeah no to headspace yes to safe space <laughs> yes i'm always for a safe space okay mm. thanks for meeting with me and sharing your experiences with me and also sharing yourself with everyone thanks we'll for be having me in. yeah of course <laughs> We're going to end it here. Thanks for listening to this episode of HC High. Stay tuned for another episode where we interview another exciting member of this exciting program. Bye. I think it's Dark UX. Yeah. Sorry. Dark Matters. Mm, Yes. Dark. um, Evil. Yes. Evil UX. Evil UX. Okay. Sorry. I think it's Dark Matters. Yeah. Dark Matters? Dark Matters? Yeah. <laughs> Not the case. <clears throat> Go tell me. Um, hey. Do you think all gamification is like... Dark Patterns. Oh, Dark, dark patterns. patterns. That's kind of close. I'm like Dark Matters. Very close. Patterns. You're always kind of like close. Close like, but not quite. Yeah. <laughs> Bridesmaid, not a bride. Damn. It's a little bit about me. Um, wow. Producer out. <laughs> <laughs>